you have your copy of God's Word, open tonight again to Mark chapter 10. Um, We'll finish out, hopefully, this section tonight. Mark chapter 10, uh, we've been in verses 35 through 45 uh, for a couple of weeks now. And uh, this one just really, 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 I didn't think that we would be here this long. But um, um, the Word of God sometimes um, necessitates that we do that, that we linger somewhere, that there's more in it than, than really is there on the surface. And so we have to kind of dig down deep. Um, just a synopsis for some of you, just maybe you weren't here for the whole thing. I won't, I certainly won't preach the whole uh, previous two messages, but um, we have a tendency to chase glory. We were actually made to chase glory. We were made to look for things that are glorious. And we see this every time we, we uh, come across a, a sports fan uh, or or uh, any kind of fan of anything, um, you know, whether it's, uh, whether it's sports or whether it's um, child beauty pageants or, or whatever it may be. Oh, there's some light. Uh, y'all don't realize how bright those are. Uh, and that's fine. We need them up because y'all, y'all don't need to see me, but, uh, you know, it uh, probably helps. But those are bright. Um, but we are. We're, we're wired to chase glory. And uh, the reality is, is we've, we've perverted that chase. And we've, we've left what we were, sub- we were made to chase in chasing the glory of God. And we have launched off into chasing uh, bogus or counterfeit glory. We chase these things that, that satisfy our appetite for a season. I remember going to, uh, uh, to the county fair. Anybody remember going to the county fair when you were growing up? I mean, we used to always go to the Sevier County Fair. It was always right around Labor Day, and we'd go, and mom and dad would drag us through the, through the barns and make us go see all the exhibits and, you know, the, the calves and the pigs and the pumpkins and everything else, and I hated that. Just wanted to get through with that to get to the rides. But I can remember wanting cotton candy, you know, when I went, when I went to the county fair. We didn't get any other time, but I wanted cotton candy. And we'd go and we'd stand in line and we'd buy that. And how long does cotton candy last? Not very long, you know. And we would have it, it would have it everywhere, you know. It, you know, when you're a kid, you don't, you don't neatly eat anything. We'd have cotton candy all over us, but it wouldn't last long. And that's the picture here that I want you to see. When we chase glory other than God's glory... It's chasing this that may bring some satisfaction for a moment, but it is fleeting. It will never last. Um, you know, my, my great claim to fame as a Tennessee Volunteer fan is that in 1998, we won the national championship. But here we are in 2011, and things have changed quite a bit. You can say that with anything. But the glory of God never diminishes. Never goes away. It's not the, the idea of glory, the, and I didn't intend to say any of this, but the idea of the glory of God is not that he becomes more glorious as more people pursue him. He is glorious. He's the definition of glorious. He is the kabod. He, he is weightiness in and of himself. The reason we ask God to fill us up and to send us out and go is so that more people would see his gloriousness. To see his glory and become worshipers of that glory. And they would stop pursuing this glory that is counterfeit and bogus and not lasting. And they would come to see that he alone is what they're created to seek. Okay? So we have this tendency to chase after these things. But the reality is is that we are depraved and we are also deluded. 
We are evil in this. We are sinful in this. And we also are deluded in that we, we think the glory that we seek, oftentimes the glory for ourselves, we think we can handle it. We think that we can, we can pull off everything that it requires. And Jesus says to these disciples here in this text, you do not know what you're asking for. Can you drink that cup? They answered in the affirmative, but they were deluded. Then we talked this morning about that, that there is this cup that Jesus was to drink. There was this cup that the disciples were to drink. Jesus' cup was a cup of suffering to drink down the entire um, stored up wrath of God for the sins of the world. To drink it down. The cup that was, that was poured out for those apostles was to take that gospel, what they learned from Jesus, to the surrounding um, countryside and cities all around them to go to, in their day, the ends of the earth and take that gospel. And for them, it meant in, in going and doing that, that they would, it would cost them their lives. We talked this morning, and I always am, am a little, little leery sometimes of sharing a lot of those gory details, but did you catch some of the gory details of, some, of how some of those apostles died? Um, that's the cup that was poured out for them. And they went from being men who said, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we want you to do for us, to, if it costs me my life, I will go. And they did. The difference is the gospel. They got the gospel. Jesus died and he was resurrected. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they went. So there is this cup we talked this morning about, the cup for us. What is that cup? Um, and then tonight I want to finish up with then, in light of all of that, how do we seek glory now? How do we pursue greatness? Uh, and I want to do so in the last few verses. Let's look at verse 42 in this section uh, of Mark chapter 10. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The world's way to greatness. I want to show you this. Jesus points out to them here that there are two ways to pursue greatness or to pursue glory. And the world's way is this. He says to them, don't you know, don't you look around and see in the world of the Gentiles, in the world of the Romans, in that, that carnal, ungodly world, that those who are considered great, how do they, how do you know they are great? Well, you know because you look around and you see certain ones of them lording it over or exercising authority. I sat in on Steve Fisher's Sunday school class um, last Sunday, and I told him he just walked right into this. Uh, they were commenting on his, his new stool that he had, he had bought for his class, and he was sitting up, sitting up high. And uh, Clay Hendricks said, you know, 
Yeah, Steve, Steve likes to be above us because, you know, he, he wants to be over us, you know. And Steve said, yeah, I have to get up here so I can lord it over them. I can lord over them. And I thought, you don't know what you just did because I was right in the middle of studying this passage. So I, I really just want you all to be aware that, that uh, the most worldly Sunday school class we have here at Admiral Creek is Steve Fisher's. So just, just so you know. Right, Steve? Yeah. <laughs> Now, see, I know Steve well enough to know he'll probably get rid of that stool tonight, you know, but uh, to avoid to avoid that appearance. Um, but he says here, don't you know that those who are considered rulers, the Gentiles, lord it over them, the great ones exercise authority over them? Let me ask you a question. Now, follow the language here. Who are those who consider those who are considered to be rulers? In other words, who determines who is powerful? Who determines greatness? Who determines authority? Who determines popularity? I can remember being in middle school and high school and wanting to figure this out. You know? I mean, it's been a long time, but I can think back to when I was in middle school and high school and now I have a son who's getting ready to go into middle school. And I, but I can think back and, and think about how I wanted to be part of the popular crowd. I, I, just, I wanted to be part of them. I wanted to be in that crowd. I wanted them to consider me great. You know, I, I just wanted to be able to run with them and hang with them. The problem was I never knew who they were. Now, I knew who the popular kids were. That's not hard to figure out. But I never could figure out who determined who the popular kids were. Because I spent my middle school and high school career, most of it, trying to find them so that I could convince them that they should pick me. Anybody else been there? I mean, I know for a lot of us it's been a long time. But maybe it doesn't end with middle school and high school. Maybe it's still going on. We still are trying to figure out who is it that says... Who's great? Let me find them so that I can convince them that I'm one of the great. I wish I would have realized back in middle school and high school that to chase that kind of glory was to chase counterfeit, bogus glory. Because here's why. Because that kind of glory comes from those who are not authorized to give it. If I ever found those who said, these are the cool kids, I would be horribly let down. Because only God is an authority in glory. Do you get what I'm saying? We spend our lives, they're, they're maybe, not, maybe not as much as we used to, or maybe not even as obvious of ways as we did when we were living in those middle school and high school days, but don't we still, from time to time, spend our lives trying to impress them? Trying to please whoever they are? I think we do. And the reality is, they have no right, no authority to give that kind of glory. Pronounce that kind of glory. Why do we spend so much time trying to be great in each other's eyes? You ever, you ever been face to face with an opportunity to really 
step up and do the right thing or, or step out and witness to someone, but you blew it because of maybe the situation or who was watching, what was around, what they would think. Every time we do that, we come face to face with the, with the reality that we care more about our own glory than we do about His. Romans chapter 1, I want to read this long section because I want you to see, I think this is why, this is the explanation that Scripture gives us as to why we spend so much time trying to chase after this bogus or this counterfeit, this world's way to glory. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, Or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. And birds and animals and creeping things. This is what I tried to do all through middle school and high school. I was not looking around and seeing what was obvious about God all around me in creation. I was not living for the one who had drawn me to himself when I was eight years old. Instead, I was looking around trying to find whoever they were so that they could pronounce me as glorious as themselves. And I had exchanged the glory of God for images of mortal man, namely Myself. Jesus said it this way when he was on the planet in John chapter 5 verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? We spend so much of our time trying to impress one another. Trying to be great in one another's eyes. Donald Trump is proof of this. Donald Trump is probably the poster boy for this. And I'm not saying anything about his spirituality, but you and I know when you try to think of someone who is who is powerful and who lords it over, who exercises authority. Did did y'all ever watch the show uh, The Apprentice? You know what I'm talking about? You, You may not have seen it, but, you know, his his favorite thing on that show was to look across the table, I think, and say, you're fired. You know, and just crush the person that was across the table. Donald Trump is proof that you don't have to have good hair to be great in the world's eyes. Donald Trump is proof that all you got to do is lord it over. Exercise authority. Be confident. Be the most glorious one in your own mind and convince those around you that you are more glorious than them. The world's way to greatness is exactly that. But Jesus is emphatic in this text, in his 
private time with his disciples here, he is emphatic in his position on pursuing worldly greatness. He says in verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. Don't look around. Don't you see? They, they lord it over. They exercise authority, but it shall not be so with you. And God's way to greatness, he says, is this. In the last part of verse 43 and verse 44. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever must, would be first among you must be slave of all. This is just one more paradigm-shifting teaching of Jesus. Just in these past few uh, encounters with Jesus, even in this, these past couple of chapters, we've seen Jesus, even in the same chapter, we've seen Jesus... Uh, teach things like that the kingdom of God belongs to children. Well, that was, they, that was unheard of. No one, no one gave children a place in society, let alone assign the kingdom of God to them. And Jesus does that. And then he moves on from there, and he, he talks about how difficult it will be, it is, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And he shatters their understanding that to be rich was a sign that you were in right standing with God. Now he comes and, and he teaches this, that to be great in the kingdom of God, you must be a servant. You must be slave of all. I mean, this is standing everything that they have come to rest on on its head. I want to just spend some time here on two words. The word servant and the word slave. They are, they are two different words. They are two different words in the original language because he means here two different things. He wants to give us one, and then he wants to take it that much further and give us the next. First of all, whoever wants to be great will be servant. He must be your servant. The word here, servant, comes, it's the word diakonai. It's where we get our word deacon. Every year we examine and elect deacons to serve the congregation. The work of the deacon in, in the local church is extremely important. We're getting ready to, to do that here in just the next, you know, few weeks. We'll, we'll, be, we'll be electing deacons together as, as a faith family. Their work is very important. They will care for needy people within the family of God. Uh, people will trust them with the intimate details of their lives. Deacons are called on to make those, those visits and go to the hospital and go to homes. And, and sometimes people will, will trust them and, and, uh, and pour out to them. They will be ministers of mercy. I've, I've been so thankful um, throughout this whole ordeal uh, with, with Herman being sick. Uh, if, if Herman would have lived till tomorrow, it would have been nine weeks from the surgery. And um, I, I'm so thankful for, and I, I, they would not want me to do this, but I'm so thankful for two people in, in particular, um, Effie and Wallace, um, two of our deacons. I just want to show you what kind of men we have. They were there throughout the whole thing. Loving on this family, getting them in and out of the house, taking them to eat, bringing them meals, praying with them, just being there. I'm telling you, it made my job as a pastor so much easier. And i got to tell you, too, there was no competition there. 
Uh, I know, probably, and I may get a little too too intimate here, but uh, you know, with Wallace being a former pastor here, uh, I think Wallace really tries to go out of his way to make sure that I know that he's not trying to cut in and usurp my position as pastor. And I so appreciate that. But I got to tell you, I've never once felt that. I've known that that man is only interested in one thing, and that is to see the kingdom of God advance through this local church. That's what a deacon is to do. F.E., before, um, before, a lot of times before I could ever get there, uh, F.E. would be there, you know, and uh, he'd get off that lawnmower and come in and, and be there. I mean, just that, that's, that's what a deacon is, and that's what Jesus here is talking about. That a, a, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you will not lord it over, you will not exercise authority, but you will serve. You, the original word means to wait on tables. The reality is that this is not the assignment of a select few. Every year we, we do this, we, we put some names out there, we pray and we vote and we bring those men in. Guess what? The time for them to start serving is not when they are elected. The reality is we are to look for men of the congregation who are already serving and affirm them by installing them into that office. But, but the reality is, this is not an assignment for just a select few. This is the assignment for all those who have had their lives changed by the gospel. This is not what they are to begin once they have been elected. This is what they are to always be about. They are to serve, to wait on tables, to do what needs to be done. To Jesus portrayed this for us. He gave us this example when no one washed their feet and he got up from the table and he, and he girded himself and he took the basin of water and he washed their feet. He served them because there was a need and he met it. He didn't say, look boys, I, I, you know, hey, I'm, I'm the son of God. No, he demonstrated for us that he did not come to be served, but he came to serve. This is the task of anyone who is following Christ. But secondly, the word I, I want to really spend more time on here is the word slave. Because the word slave really has gotten a bad rap and is avoided most of the time, and for good reason. Um, I... I recommended this book to you back when I was going through the Save series, but I will recommend it to you again. Um, John MacArthur is one of my one of my favorite theologians. He's a pastor in California. He's been a pastor for um, I think the better part of four decades, maybe even more than that. The same church, um, just plugging away, teaching the Word of God, writing books, leading his people, and this is a book called Slave. Uh, the, the tagline or the subtitle is The Hidden Truth About Your Identity in Christ. Uh, I could wholeheartedly recommend this book to you. Um, in this book, he brings out this word slave. 
in some very unique ways. We have avoided this word uh, largely because of um, the history of uh, the slave trade with the British Empire and the um, American colonial era. We've, we've just stayed away from this word slave. But this word slave, he points out and shows, is used all over the place in the Bible. And it's used in a good way. In fact, you know, most of the time the, the meat of the book is in the cover. I mean, it's within the pages. But I just want to read you um, what the Reverend Dr. Dallas H. Wilson, Jr., who is an African-American uh, pastor of St. John's Episcopal Chapel down in Charleston, what he wrote in, uh, in um, his review of the book. Dr. John MacArthur's teaching on slavery resonates in the deepest recesses of my inner man. As an African-American pastor, I have been there. That is why the thought of someone writing about slavery as being a godsend was the most ludicrous, unconscionable thing that I could have ever imagined until I read this book. Now I see that becoming a slave is a biblical command, completely redefining the idea of freedom in Christ. I don't want to simply be a follower or even just a servant, but a slave. This is an African-American pastor saying here he wants to be a slave of Christ. I mean, I read that to you because I want you to see the weight of this. When Jesus here says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you must be a slave. The followers of Jesus Christ uh, were not called, and they were not called Christians. I want to give you a little information from the book. They were not called Christians until probably 10 to 15 years after Jesus ascended after his resurrection. Uh, up until that time, uh, between Jesus' ascension and when they were first called Christians, um, they were called things like disciple, brother, uh, followers of the way. Um, you know, they, they, were, they were called these kind of terms. But they were not called Christian for some 10 to 15 years after the fact. Christian was, the, the title Christian was first coined by those who were um, antagonistic to the way. It was, a, it was a title that was given to the followers of the way in order to ridicule them, to make fun of them, to antagonize them. They called them Christians so that they could insult them. Now, you and I don't think of the, the term Christian as an insult today unless we're watching um, certain news programs or listening to, to certain commentators, Bill Maher or some others. By and large, we don't think of Christian as being an insulting title. But in those days, it was started for that very reason. The word itself meant those of Christ. Those of Christ. Uh, those of the day, those of Rome, had a similar term. But theirs didn't mean those of Christ. Theirs meant those of Caesar. And when they used that name, those of Caesar, they didn't mean it as an insulting, derogatory term. They used that, took it upon themselves as the title for their lives to show their out-and-out soul devotion to the emperor. And then they made fun of those who had this same type of devotion to this one who had been crucified. The title Christian only appears three times in the New Testament. You and I, what you and I go by every single day, only is used three times in the New Testament. Uh, the scripture uses all sorts of other names for us who are 
who are followers of the way or who are believers. Scripture calls us aliens and strangers of God, citizens of heaven, uh, lights in the world, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, members of His body. We are sheep of His pasture. We are ambassadors. We are friends. We are athletes. We are soldiers. We are branches on the vine. We are even newborn babies that should crave spiritual milk. But the New Testament's favorite, favorite title that it uses more than any other title for those who follow Christ is none of those. The one that's used more than any other title is slave. Now, you won't find this because in a lot of our modern translations, they took that word, uh, doulos, uh, in the original language, and instead of translating it to read slave, they translated it to servant. There were five different words that could be used in the original language to mean servant. Doulos never means servant. Doulos always meant slave, both in the Bible and in extra-biblical writings. Now, over the, over the years, when they would come to this, and particularly in our modern translations, and when I say modern, I mean, you know, as far back as King James, um, Geneva Bible. By the way, this is the 400th year uh, uh, celebrating the, uh, uh, the King James Bible. 1611 was the, uh, was the year that King James was written. But even in the King James, when they came to this word, they did not translate doulos as slave. Instead, they translated it as servant. So there's so many times in your scriptures that you will read and you will read something as servant when really it is slave. In writing about the early Christians... John MacArthur says this in the book, their self-identity had been radically redefined by the gospel. Whether slave or free in this life, they had all been set free from sin. Yet having been bought with a price, get this line, yet having been bought with a price, they had all become slaves of Christ. All of those early disciples, they knew what doulos meant. They didn't term it just as servant. They knew that they had been bought. And sadly, this reality has been lost not only in our modern translations, but also on scores who call themselves Christ followers. MacArthur goes on and he says this, likening him to a personal assistant or a personal trainer, many churchgoers speak of a personal savior who is eager to do their bidding and help them in their quest for self-satisfaction or individual accomplishment. The New Testament's understanding of the believer's relationship to Christ could not be more opposite. He is the master and the owner. We are his possession. He is the king, the Lord, and the son of God. We are his subjects and his subordinates. In a word, we are his slaves. The difference between servants and slaves is huge. See, a, a servant um, is hired. 
servant is hired, and to some degree, a servant can determine how much he will work or she will work. A servant is really free to say who they will or will not work for. Um, A slave is different. A slave has no freedom, no autonomy, no rights. They cannot say what they will and will not do. They cannot say how much they will or will not do. They cannot say that they will not work for their owner because they are owned. And the picture is that we are owned because we've been bought with the price of the blood of the Lamb of God. To be someone's slave was to be his possession, bound to obey his will without hesitant or argue, hesitation or argument. Um, this is the picture of slave here. When Jesus says to them, after they have said, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we want you to do for us. What do you want me to do for you? We want you to grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left when you come into your glory. And Jesus pulls them aside and says, guys, you see how the world does it. You see how the world pronounces greatness. You see how they achieve, how they step on one another, push each other down so that they can beat each other to the glory seats, so that they can elevate themselves to the top. It will not be so with you. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you must be servants and you must be slave of all. Be specific in those two words. And how many church members do we have that demand their rights? I'm not pointing fingers here. In fact, I'll point fingers back at myself. How many times do I feel entitled? How many times do you feel entitled? How many times do we demand our rights? I want you to let this sink in. I want you to realize that true Christianity, hear me on this, true Christianity is not adding Jesus to your life. In true Christianity, He is your life. We treat Christianity sometimes as if it can be compartmentalized. We say, We say things like, for instance, we say, uh, you're in church. You shouldn't talk like that. To which I've said on more than one occasion, so you should when you're not in church? And then the reality is, when do you stop being in church? We think that we can compartmentalize this this thing of following Christ. We think that we can simply be a hired servant and we can can say when we're going to work and we can say when we're not going to work. We can say when we're going to serve and when we're not going to serve. But if you have been bought with the blood of Jesus, you are not your own. You are the possession of God. Now, if you think back to um, those slave days that you and I are familiar with, 
there's horrendous stories that have come out of that, that era. And, and I don't want in any way to, to paint that in a, in, a, in a nice light. Slavery in our history was a horrendous blight. I wish we could go back and remove it altogether. If you think back to some of those, some of the ways that some of those slaves were treated, it was horrendous. I mean, just absolutely horrible. The fact that they made it to America on those ships, many of them, it was a miracle in itself. They sailed all that way, standing in these compartments that were only large enough for them to squeeze into, and they stood the entire way in these compartments. Many of them died on the ships on the way over. And the reality is, when we talk about being a slave of God in Christ Jesus, you and I don't have to worry about having a, an evil master. Because you and I have the best master. We have the one who is all-powerful and all-loving and good in all that he does. Seeking only our best for his glory. Even when it doesn't feel like our best or, or seem like our best, it is. Whatever comes into our lives is deemed necessary. It is deemed perfect by a sovereign, holy God who loves you enough to wound you in order to make you like his son and spend eternity with you. If we are to do this, if we are to seek greatness, then I just began to think through practically some examples of what this might look like. If you are a boss... What might it look like to be a servant? What might it look like for you to be a slave of God while you're the boss? What might it look like if if you're an employee? Would it change the attitude with which you carried out your task? Are you a husband? According to Ephesians 5, the husband is the head of the wife. But does she respond to that because she is commanded to or because of the way you serve her? Are you a parent? How would being a slave and a servant change the way you parent? Or are you a son or a daughter? As a church member, how should this change your position, your standing, your attitude as a church member? Do you sit back and expect everything to be to your liking and then complain when it's not? Do you demand your rights? Even though in many cases, those are sometimes the very people who are doing next to nothing in the life of the church. Or do you realize that you have no rights because you laid them down at repentance when you believed in Christ? That you were bought off of the slave market of sin by, the, by Christ's ransom? 
Therefore, you spend your time serving and doing the menial tasks of church life so that others would come to see him as truly great. Jesus is our ransom. He has bought us. I think the point of this whole text, I've just been struck with this, wrestled with this, it has really, has really hit me in a very heavy way over these past two weeks studying this, this section. Is that we will spend our lives chasing glory. We will either spend our lives chasing His or chasing ours. And which way will you go? Will you go the way of the world and chase your own glory by lording it over and exercising authority and stepping on whoever gets in your way in order for you to get to the top and become the greatest? Or will you go, go the way of the kingdom and follow the way of the master and come not to be served but to serve? And to realize that He has ransomed you. The ransom was never paid to the devil. Don't think that. The devil had no right over us. He did not own us in that sense. The ransom was paid to God Himself. The ransom was paid in order to satisfy the wrath of a holy and a just God. Will you realize that He is your ransom? Is your chief ambition in life work and play to grab glory for yourself, to have people notice you, to applaud you, to appreciate you, to remember you? Or is your chief ambition to become a servant, even a slave, so that they would notice, applaud, appreciate, and remember the gift of God in the service of Christ? My hope is for my own life that by His grace that I would die to self and gladly call myself His slave. My hope is for you that you would by His grace die to yourself and become His slave. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we sang in song earlier there was a line that said, keep us from just singing. Move us to go. And God, I pray that when we look at this particular text, God, that that's exactly what you would do. That you would keep us from just singing these things, just saying these things, just talking about these things, just thinking that one day we'll get around to these things. But God, that you would move us to, to embrace them, to die to ourselves to realize that we do nothing to earn any of this. You have done it all. Therefore, we are slaves. But oh, what a wonderful master we have. God, would you motivate us and move us to seek always and only your glory. Not in a way that we would Seek it so that we could rob it from you, but that we would seek that others would see you for all of who you are. 
and that we would, as we go, we would see more and more and more of your glory. Until one day we are around your throne. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great night.